Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman, who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young, young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, 
gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Thank you so much for that reading. Particularly interesting here, Ishan refer speaking to his mother saying, now listen, my daughter, but <laughs> a little dram dramatic flair there. Doesn't help, doesn't hurt, so thank you. Uh, many of you were following or at least exposed to some of the uh, terrible news coming out of Ventura County, California this uh, week with the, the mudslides and just, for me, it was just horrific seeing pictures of people uh, and uh, interviews with people covered in mud and stories of reaching down and grabbing babies out of, uh, uh, out of mudslides and uh, just devastation and loss. And, and now in the wake of that, the, the, the camera crews will very quickly pull away and yet there is, there people are left with questions. Uh, uh, one headline said that uh, many are rethinking the California dream. Uh, and yet, I suspect people are left with bigger problems and bigger questions than just the California dream. They're asking questions about, what do we do? Like, what, there's so, been so much change, so much loss. How do you go on? Uh, what, what do you do? Uh, and, and just trying to make sense of life. Uh, many people will be looking at their lives today and trying to make sense of things because they thought that life was something and now they've realized it's something else. Uh, and having, having to ask uh, questions about uh, how they cope with that. Uh, many may find themselves agreeing with uh, Clarence Darrow, who very pessimistically wrote that life is like a ship on the sea tossed by every wave and by every wind, a ship headed for no port and no harbor, with no rudder, no compass, no pilot, simply floating for a time, then lost in the waves. That's a very depressing way to look at life. And, and yet some people will draw that conclusion this week based on those circumstances. And, and we will draw other conclusions about our lives. Uh, some of you from different circumstances based on different uh, painful trials that you have gone through will will draw something conclusions something like that, and yet others will not. Others will draw vastly different conclusions. Uh, Pamela Hotch faced a crisis. Uh, it wasn't a mudslide, but it was a, a crisis that she felt she would never recover from. It felt like it was too much. Uh, she, in her case, she'd been alienated from her children and could not be uh, reunited with with them. There had been a uh, a court court battle that had gone on and on and on and people said you know you just need to drop this it, it's not going to happen it's uh, it, it's hopeless and she recognized that, yeah it probably is help hopeless she just couldn't imagine life any other way uh, couldn't imagine life not being reunited with them and she felt abandoned by God she pe felt hopeless about her future and she was to give up. And just at that time, she decided, I will reach for a Bible, and I, I'm not expecting anything, but uh, she opened up, um, she opened up the, the, the Bible that she had in her home. And uh, as she did, she just looked down at the page, and she, she read from Jeremiah 31.15. 
And there she read the words, A voice is heard in Ramah, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted. And she broke down in tears. Uh, She put the Bible aside as she would just overcome emotionally that this this verse and, and what she was going through just seemed to be like God was speaking to her. Uh, and yet she felt God urging her to read on. In the, in the following verse, she read, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for the Lord is pleased with the work that you will do. Your children will return to their own land. She would later say that as she read those words, my life and my future were transformed. At that moment, I claimed those words as God's promise to me. A new energy born of hope filled my heart, and I resolved never, ever to give up on loving my children. Now, I need to say that flipping open your Bible and the first verse that you come across is saying, oh, this is God speaking to me is a terrible and maybe dangerous way to read the scriptures. Uh, that is not the way that God has intended for us to hear his voice and to, and to uh, listen to him. And yet, the story to me is a reminder that God isn't limited by our mistakes or presumption or anything else. If he wants to get... Uh, a hold of someone's life if he wants to speak into someone who is in need and is calling out to him for help, he will do that in whatever way he would choose to do. Pamela went on to win a landmark, landmark court decision that would see her reunited with her children. And more importantly, she began a ministry to uh, parents like her who were alienated uh, from their children and feeling without hope, uh, feeling that there wasn't a way forward and has made a a life now of serving and ministering to people in those needs. I think the passage that our readers shared this morning from Ruth chapter 2 is a little bit like that story. There's no mudslide, but the characters have found themselves without hope uh, in a, a seemingly desperate uh, situation is they're trying to recover from a famine. There is discrimination, there's childlessness, uh, there's poverty, there's loneliness. But in the midst of that, God shows a way forward. And, and I believe, really, uh, the contribution of this chapter is to show us what can you actually do? So I'm, I'm in a mud, I've just suffered a mud, mudslide, or I'm, I'm in this crisis. What can you actually do? What, what, what steps can you take? What, what, what are you left with? If you haven't already uh, turned there as the readers were reading, turn with me to Ruth chapter 2. And uh, I want to walk through this passage with you and uh, see what it, would, uh, what it would teach us. I want to first focus on Ruth herself. And I, I believe she gives us an example of humble devotion. Uh, she shows us that even when desperate situations come upon us, even when we feel undone and hopeless, we can't see a way forward, uh, that we can respond with humility and with devotion. We saw last week that Ruth had experienced the death of her husband. Uh, And that meant for her uh, financial insecurity, it meant anxiety about her future, it meant um, really not knowing how how to make her way forward. Even still, when her widowed mother-in-law made the decision to return to Israel, Ruth was the daughter-in-law who said, I'll go with you. She said that she would go with her knowing that 
that would come with great, it would make a desperate situation more desperate for her. It, it might be some help, it might be some encouragement to her mother-in-law, but it would in, it almost certainly involve more hardship, uh, more uncertainty, and more vulnerability for her. She would go and she would face life as an outsider. And there's a number of little hints in this passage that, that life as an outsider was one of the challenges she was dealing with. In verse 2, Ruth is called Ruth the Moabite. And that's strange because we've already found out in chapter 1 that she was from Moab. He's not giving us new information. It's emphasizing, hey, as you're reading this story, remember that Ruth is a Moabite. She's from a land and a nation that was looked down upon by uh, people from Israel. She came as a foreigner to Israel. And we're, we're supposed to feel the prejudice that uh, she would have been uh, fearing uh, being confronted with. When the landowner, landowner Boaz shows up on the scene and he asks the young manager, hey, who's this, uh, this woman? Uh, in verse 6, the manager just calls her the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Again, we're just getting, again, everybody looks at her and says, she does, they're not seeing uh, all of the details of, about her life. They're just seeing her as the foreigner, the outsider. And that would put her in a place of, of prejudice, of vulnerability. She doesn't know the system. She doesn't have connections. Uh, the only person that she knows is at the very bottom rung of the status uh, uh, structure in, in Israel at the time. And that would put her in a place of uh, of, uh, of danger. We get some sense of that danger in verse 9 when we hear that Boaz has actually commanded the young man not to touch her. So the implication is that without his in in intervention, they would feel quite, quite open and, and free to, to abuse her, to, uh, to hurt her, and we, we, get, we get some sense of what she's dealing with. I'm not sure if you've You've felt that. Probably many of you have, have, have felt some of, the, uh, some of the uncertainty and vulnerability that goes along with being an outsider. I, I remember when we first, we, we went to rent our first apartment in Japan. And we're in the real estate, uh, real estate agent's office. You do everything through real estate agents in, uh, in Japan. We're, we found a place we wanted to rent. And the agent calls the landlord and explains Hey, we've got some people, they're, they're uh, looking to, to sign the contract and move forward. And I didn't know very much Japanese at the time, but I could understand uh, from the other end of the phone, the landlord saying, I don't rent to foreigners. And just that sense of, oh yeah, we're, we're outsiders here. It, it's going, every step is going to be that much harder um, because we are, we're new to the country. They don't know where we're coming from, what to expect, and... Uh, got to overcome some of those difficulties. And that's where uh, Ruth finds herself here in this chapter. When you feel that, you know, when I'm, when I'm hearing that, I'm thinking, you know, you want to either throw your hands up and, and fight or, or give up, you know. Uh, and it's easy to respond in, in, in different ways. Ruth here pours herself into what she could do. She responds with faithfulness. In, in verse 2, she says to her mother-in-law, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. 
she doesn't know at this point whether she'll find favor in anyone's eyes. She doesn't know that she will receive a reception anywhere she goes, but uh, she takes the initiative and wants to, be, uh, wants to be useful. She wants to do what I can do. Verse 7 tells us that she's gotten to work early in the morning. Verse 17 says she's gleaned in the field until evening. She has been, she's found a place where she can work and she's just going to be faithful, not knowing what tomorrow will bring, not knowing how she's going to make her way through this. But if I find someone in whose eyes I find favor, I'll give myself to the work that I can do. She does it in one sense for herself. She needs, she needs to, feed, to, to feed herself. She needs some source of, of income. But she also does it for her mother-in-law. She knows that as hard as her life is, Naomi's is worse. She, she at least has her strength. She, there's things that she can do that Naomi can't. And so she works for the both of them. Some people who do that will work hard, but they'll work hard with a chip on their shoulder. There's that sense that I shouldn't have to do all of this. That, uh, there, there's a, a, a pride that, that, that can be attached to that. But throughout this chapter, we see nothing but Ruth's humility. When she shows up in the field to glean, she doesn't demand the grain. She just asks, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the harvesters. There's that sense of, uh, of asking, of humbling herself, of uh, not, not putting a guilt trip on the manager or the workers, just asking graciously. After the workers would collect the harvest, there'd be leftovers. And so she's merely asking, can I have some of the scraps? If, there's, if, if they drop some things, there's stuff left over, can I have a little bit of what's left over? In verse 10, we get a sense of Ruth's heart when she's offered some water from Boaz. Like he's not, he's not pouring lavish gifts on her. He's saying, hey, just so that you don't have to break up your day and travel to the well and get water for yourself, we have, we have a supply of water left out for, for my paid workers. You can, you can draw water from there. She responds to that in verse 10 by falling on her face, bowing to the ground. It was, it was an Eastern expression. We, we saw this in, in Japan even. Um, but this was a common Eastern expression. You were getting as close to the ground as physically possible to express your, your sense that whoever it is that you're talking to is way above you. And you are as humbled as you could possibly be, in this case, out of gratitude for the act of kindness. Again, the act of kindness was, was some water was just a, a gesture of, of basic refreshment. Following that, you, you have, uh, as she's on the ground, she, she then responds to Boaz with a question. She says, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Not only did people early in the story see her as a foreigner, she was very much aware herself, I'm an outsider here. I ought to be, I'm expecting to be treated poorly. I'm expected that this is going to go, this is going to go hard for me. This will be difficult for me. And so she asks, you're not treating me like that. You're treating me with, with graciousness and kindness and, and generosity. Why is that? 
Why do you notice someone you don't have to notice? Why are you kind to someone that people otherwise wouldn't be kind to? Why are you doing this? It's a humility to her life. But Ruth's life here isn't held up for us to celebrate. To say, wow, she's that Ruth person, you know, who lived so many years ago. She, she was really amazing. It's not so much held up for that as to give us something of a guide map for when, when you find yourself in the crisis, the, the, the famine, the mudslide, the personal, uh, personal crisis. What can, you're asking yourself, what can I do? How do I move forward? And Ruth, the answer that comes through Ruth is that I can respond with humble devotion. We can be faithful. We can do what's put before us, even if it doesn't, you can't connect the dots between how what you're doing today is going to get all the way to where you want to be or you need to be. You, put, you can do what's set before you. You can do it with humility, with a sense of devotion, faithfulness. And Ruth's life shows us how to do that. Now, Boaz's life was very different, but he lived in the same time and experienced some of the same crises. Boaz uh, was neither poor nor, nor vulnerable. He was a man of means. He was a man of wealth. He was, uh, in, in one sense, very different from, from Ruth. And yet he faced his own challenges. He'd already sur- survived one famine, and he knew that it wasn't uh, un- unlikely that a- another famine would be on the way. He needed to prepare for that. He had faced some significant losses. And if he was going to maintain what he had, he needed to to make plans to deal with that. He also lived at a time when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That can make people suspicious. You can, and and we're seeing that in in our culture today as the headlines that we're reading, the things that are happening in our world today, uh, we just feel, wow, there's... There's things going on in our world that we didn't expect that would be happening. And the tendency can be to bear down and, and become protective and to guard yourself and, and to look out for your, to uh, fight for what's yours. That's the kind of life that Boaz was, was facing. Those were the kind of circumstances. And it would have been easy for him to despair, to think about the sin in his nation and to think, this, this entire nation is going and, and that's why we're facing these judgments of famine and other things would have been easy for him to despair about his life added to that he was getting along in, in years he was probably closer to Naomi's age than Ruth's he was getting older and frankly the younger single uh, unmarried women that were uh, in, in, uh, in both in Bethlehem or in the nation of Israel they weren't really much interested in him. There weren't many prospects for someone like Boaz. And so he was, at the same time, processing a life of singleness. He had lived a life of singleness for some time, but that was no doubt part of the mix as he uh, looked at his own life. And not only a lack of a partner, but a lack of an heir. What, what will I leave behind? And that was so important to people in the ancient Near East of, of their, their legacy, their, their inheritance, their, uh, someone to carry on the line after him. He teaches us to respond to life's challenges with grace and with generosity. It's easy to get absorbed in our own problems and our own stuff. 
to get lost in, in, in the problems and the sense of despair that we feel. And he says, no, I can still respond with grace and with generosity. I love the way Boaz shows up on the scene in this chapter. In verse 4, he comes into town and greets his workers. The Lord be with you. And they respond equally exuberantly. The Lord bless you. And at this time point in the scene, we don't really know, like, kind of comes across as, you know, certainly faith is, is, an, is part of his uh, vibe as a person. We just don't know if it's real or not. We don't know if he's just, it's just an air of religion or whether it is, uh, there's some reality to it. But on the face of it, at least, it seems that he cares for his workers and he cares for his God. But it's in verse 5 that we get a cl- clearer picture of his character as a boss. He asks his manager, whose young, wo- whose young woman is it? As the story unfolds, it's clear that his intentions are pure. But, but the thing that I, if we first need to notice is that he's the kind of boss that notices the people around him. He probably would have had dozens of workers working in his field. And it would have been easy for him just to rush in. He's got a lot of things he needs to be calculating in terms of planning for the harvest. Tons of work to do. He's a busy man. It would have been easy for him not to notice. One, one, extra, one extra woman picking up some, some, some grain in the field doesn't even, it would have been easy just to, just to overlook her. And yet he's the kind of person that notices. As he does, even Ruth's a little taken back. She's like, why did you take the time to notice me? I'm, I'm a foreigner. I'm like, I don't count in this, in this culture. People just look past me. People don't notice me. Love what you I love what he says in verse 11. In response to the, why did you take time to care about a foreigner like me? He says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to you. How you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Now, it's not amazing that he heard these things. It's not amazing that he was made aware of them. It was a small town, news traveled. It's amazing that he cared. This is a busy time for him as a, as a landowner. This is a time when he needs to pour his energy into the harvest, into the work, into the planning. He's recovering from years of famine, and now he needs to make, some, make up on some lost, lost money. Hearing about some, some widow who'd come from Moab, like, who cares? A lot of people just would have not even taking an interest. It, it's particularly amazing because he's a guy, right? Because you tell guys stuff and it's like detail. You know, I'm not some, some woman. Like, who cares? I, I've got a job to do. Boaz isn't like that. He takes an interest in people. He's got a, a compassion for the people. Even in the busiest time of his year, even with all the work that he's got going on, he takes a concern and interest in people around him. Having noticed Ruth and seen her predicament, Boaz acted to protect, protect her. In verse 8, he invites her to stay in his field and glean alongside his young women. There'd be no more worrying that she's somehow imposing. There'd be no more feeling like, okay, I'm the foreigner showing up here. I've got nothing to offer. Like, I'm not hired as a worker. I'm just picking up the scraps. I don't have to f- feel like everybody's eyes are on me, looking down on me. No, he invites her to stay. 
and he did so at financial cost to himself. In verse 9, we see that he's charged his young men not to touch her. He is seen to her protection. Boaz uses his position to protect those under him. He protects Ruth because he knows that she's vulnerable. She needs someone to look out for her, care for her. It's 2017 and the Me Too movement has taught us anything. We, we need more Boazes in our culture today. We need more people who will use their status to protect people that are vulnerable, not to exploit them. And that's what Boaz is showing us. So Boaz grants Ruth access to the supply of water drawn for the workers. He invites her to a lunchtime meal. This would not only give her food and, and give her someone to share uh, a meal with, by inviting the lowest person socially in that group and elevating her to a place of honor with, with Boaz, he would be sending a signal to everyone there, she's on, she's on the inside. I'm looking out for her, I care for her, and I'm going to honor her so that you will protect her. Finally, he sends her home with what is, uh, is said an ephah of, of barley. It's between 30 and 50 pounds. She has in one day collected uh, what would have been half a month's wages. Just an incredible uh, sum and, and would have been an overwhelming amount to her and to her mother-in-law Naomi. Boaz shows us how to live in an age when everyone does what is right in his own eyes. This was not the way everybody acted in Israel at this time. This was not business as usual. In fact, as he would look around, as he would see what was happening in his culture, he would say, we are on this downward spiral. That's, that's what you, the picture you get as you read through the book of Judges. It is a mess morally. And Boaz said, I, I can't do, I can't, do everything to, uh, to fix what is happening in my nation. I can do something about this plot of land that God has given me and about how I respond to those who God brings across my path. He shows us how to take time to notice people. He shows us how to be gracious, how to be generous, how to protect those in need, provide for those who can't provide for themselves. But this is important. Even once we've gotten... Ruth's example of humble devotion and Boaz's life of gracious generosity and we say, okay, I get it. That's what I can do. It's important that the text notices that that's not enough. It's never enough. As you read this chapter, it's, it's, it's clear that those actions in and of themselves wouldn't have gotten very far had God not been involved working in, in their lives and in the lives of uh, the people uh, in, this, in this account. Now, as you read the story, it's, it's, it's not easy to see God. I believe God's actions are deliberately hidden so that, you, so that they're not obvious. And, and the message is that when your world feels like it's falling apart, when you're in the midst of the mudslide, you can't see God. It's not obvious where God is working feels like God isn't there. But in fact, as you look then more closely with eyes of faith, you see his fingerprints all over the chapter, inviting us to patient trust. We can look to him even when we can't see him, even when it's not clear. He invites us to patient trust. 
Notice in verse 1, the narrator introduces to a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. He's called a worthy man, and his name is Boaz. And you've just got this one line, like, with seemingly no connection. And then we walk into this story about, about Ruth and Naomi, and she's going off to the field. Just this one line uh, telling us about this man. And we don't know why the narrator is giving us that information. Why has he given us this clue? Other than to say, I'm going to give you, the readers, a little piece of information that the other characters in the story don't know about. This is like a little secret aside. Something's going on here, but they don't know it. There's this man named Boaz, and he's like super worthy. He's a really amazing guy. When it feels like our world is falling apart, that's often what happens. There's information we just don't have. We're, we're not the listeners. We're, we're feeling like the characters in this story. Like the people who are just a part of these events, just going out to the field. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to work faithful today. But I might just get rejected and, and sent home and abused because I'm a foreigner and I don't really have any status or, 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 or rights in this, in this place. When it feels like our world is falling apart, we don't have the information. And so we need to move forward, trusting that God will reveal himself. In verse 3, we read that Ruth has gone out to glean in the fields, and it says, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And we're thinking, oh yeah, we got some information that nobody else had in verse 1. We heard about this guy named Boaz. Oh, she just happened to come to that place. Of all the places she could have gone, she comes across a relative who is a worthy man in an age when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. With that little piece of information from verse 1, we're thinking, I don't think it's a coincidence. I think that God is kind of orchestrating these events. But, But Ruth can't see that. Boaz can't see that. As she's working away, verse 4 says, And behold, Boaz came from, came from Bethlehem. Wow, another amazing coincidence. See, Boaz is a busy guy. He's, he's got a lot of things to, to take care of. There's administrative details. He's got some position in, in the town. He's got a lot of things going. He can't afford to be checking up on his field all of the time. He's got his, his uh, managers doing that on his behalf. But on this day... Behold, he came. He came in from town on the one day of the year that this, this uh, Moabitess, this foreigner, this widow who was in great need, as she was walking into the field, behold, oh, on that day, Boaz just happened to come. Another amazing coincidence. Again, Ruth and Boaz have no idea what's happened. Ruth has gone into that field today feeling anxious, ready for whatever treatment she may feel. Boaz has gone gone into that field despairing about what's happening nationally in Israel, despairing about some of his personal circumstances and his future, his inheritance. And even as both are wondering, what is God in my life? What's he doing? We as readers are given a glimpse of God's incredible 
hand orchestrating all of the events, working behind the scenes to do things that are amazing and wonderful, but which the characters in, this, in these events are completely unaware of. Even as we hear Ruth's question in verse 10 about, why has she found favor in Boaz's eyes that he should take notice of her? We're thinking, yeah, that is a good question. Why did he notice her? Guys just are kind of usually not, not thinking about other people. They're, they're kind of focused on the task. How come this guy at this time is noticing her? What's that all about? God invites us to trust him even when we can't see him. And this is really at the heart of the blessing that we see in this chapter. In verse 12, Boaz proclaims these words of blessing to Ruth. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He's praying that God would notice this person the way he noticed her. But we're, we're the readers. We've got all this background information, and we're kind of chuckling, thinking, no, no, God saw her way before you did, Boaz. He's the one that opened your eyes to what was going on in her life. And he's saying, God, if there's any way you could kind of notice this uh, widow over here, she seems to kind of be in a tough situation. And we're thinking, no, no, God's got this thing way, way in advance. He's the one that's opening up your eyes. Notice he roots a blessing in Ruth's posture as one taking refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. Boaz here is picturing Ruth as a defenseless young bird seeking safety under God's warm, protective wings. Now, that didn't mean that Ruth was like some passive, defenseless thing. Like she was, she was working hard. She went out and did what she could. She was a strong and courageous woman. But no, Boaz knows no matter how strong she is, no matter how courageous she is, not enough. She needs to find refuge under the wings of God. And that message is for all of us. We're, we're not Boaz here. We're not, we're not, the, the, we're not the, 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 the eagle here with the strong wings. We're all Ruth in this, in this uh, story. We're all ones who need to seek refuge under God's powerful wings two widows out trying to make their way in a harsh world without God could not make it. But they sought refuge under God's wings, under his protection. King David later took up these same words from verse 12 as his own prayer. Psalm 57.1, he prayed, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Whether you find yourself in a mudslide or a famine or a personal crisis or a financial wall, whether there were a widowed foreigner or a mighty king, the scriptures proclaim that we are to respond with humility. We ought to act with faithfulness. We need to do what we can do. Whatever is put before us, even if we can't get it all figured out, we can do what we can do but we need to do what we do with the recognition that it's not enough. Ultimately, we need to seek refuge in God with the conviction that it's only in Him, with His strength, that things just happen to take place for our blessing. 
Jesus came as the promised rescue, as a promised Savior who sought to, to rescue all who would seek refuge under his wings. He came to provide that refuge for us. He came to be the, the strength and the refuge that Boaz was longing, longing for Ruth, that he longed for himself. And yet Jesus bemoaned the fact that many are too proud to seek refuge. They're willing to do what Ruth did, to do what they can do. They're just not all that interested in seeking what God can do. And so their lives are self-effort, self-righteousness. Jesus said, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? you were not willing. You did what you could do, but you didn't come to me. You didn't look to me. You didn't seek refuge in me. Learn from Ruth's humility. Learn from her devotion. Let's do what we can do, even when we can't see what's, what's before us and what's coming. Follow Boaz's example of gracious generosity. But as you do recognize that it's not enough. That's not going to get you where you need to get. Here, Jesus' invitation to patient trust. Find your refuge in Him. By faith in Him, experience the refuge that can come, the strength that He gives, the power that only He can offer as we pursue His blessings and look to Him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement of your word. And I pray this morning for anyone who is in the storm. Anyone who is feeling the need of refuge. Father, I pray that they would bring their weakness and their need to the only one who can help. And I pray, Father, more than anything, that they would experience the refuge of the shadow of your word that they might know and trust in your power and strength. And Father, I pray that you would give all of us strength. We know that you want us to do what we can do. But even when we feel like Ruth, there's a Naomi who's in greater need. So make us a blessing. Help us to not just have our eyes on ourselves, but to look to others who are in greater need. Give us eyes to see the people around us. Give us a heart to care, notice. And Father, may you be glorified as we do. For we ask you in the powerful name of Jesus Christ.